prayer and we'll get started. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this time, Father. We thank you. Father, I'm just grateful and thankful that we have a praying church, Father. With everything that's been going on here in this body, Father, I am grateful that the prayer chain has been flowing, that people have been stepping up, Father, to just do whatever it is that they can to meet the needs of those who are struggling and dealing with things uh, at this time, Father, especially our pastor, Lord. So I just thank you for that, and I just pray that you just send a special blessing to those who are hurting, to those who are struggling right now, to those who have things going on, Father, that you just touch. We're going to close service with, with a little prayer today, and we're, we're just going to ask you to just to move, Father. Move during this message. You moved during worship. Worship was wonderful, Lord. So I just pray that you continue to move throughout the service, Father. As always, I pray that you make our hearts receptive soil to that which you would say, and if it be your will, allow it to bring forth a crop, 30, 60, even 100-fold, that your name gets the glory and the honor that it deserves. It's in the mighty, matchless name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 So again, like I say, I'm just laying foundation. Just laying foundation as we step into whew, the book of Revelation. Amen. The first thing that we need to deal with is the name of the book. The name of the book is Revelation, no S, not plural. Now, believe it or not, it was, I was probably in my 20s when I figured that out or find that out. Someone told me, you know, the name of the book is Revelation without an S. And in my defense, I've seen Bibles that label it Revelations. I've seen that. So, but the correct uh, pronunciation of the word is Revelation, which comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. Why do I say that? Because in the English translation, it's apocalypse. And apocalypse means, uh, where, what do I have? Uh, destruction. Uh, the final destruction of the world. Uh, damage or an awesome, uh, damage on an awesome or catastrophic scale. That's what the English word, word means. But the word in the Greek, apocalypsis, simply means to uncover, uh, to unveil, to, to, to draw back, or watch this, to reveal, where we get the title Revelation. That's all it is. I'm a Price is Right fan, so anytime he goes up there and say, hey, Bob, what do we have behind this curtain? And they reveal it, and it's a new car. I get excited. A new car. Yeah. I get excited. I love it. So that all that is, it's, it's, it's unveiling. It's uncovering. Amen? Now, the, the, the English translation, I believe, is the reason why there's so much fear and hesitancy behind this book. Like a lot of people won't read it. A lot of pastors won't teach it. And understandably so, because there's a lot of interesting things that transpires in the, it transpire in the book. But it, it, it has a lot of fear behind it. And I remember when I was six years old, my father used to read the Bible to me. I had a living Bible. It was like, it was real thick. It wasn't very big or wide, but it was real thick. And I remember the reason why it was so thick was because it had pictures in it. And so my father would read it, and I could read it, but a lot of stuff I didn't understand. I just used to love the stories, especially Genesis. I told you, I've read Genesis a million times. I should have it memorized. But I, I, I used to love to look at the pictures. And one picture that I will never forget, I remember it vividly, when you get to the back of the book and you get to this book, Revelation, 
It had a picture of Jesus with a white robe on, a red sash, and he was pulling the curtain back. And that curtain, there was all kind of stuff happening. It was tanks. It was missiles. It was bombs going up. It was smoke everywhere. There were all kind of things. And I just, I remember just always looking at this picture. I'm like, man, wow, what is going on? Never reading it. I'm six. So, you know, whatever. But I'm looking at this and I'm like, this is, this is crazy. And then as I got older, I remember my teenage cousins. I was about maybe I was in my early teens or whatever. And I remember my cousins would tell me about a movie that they used to show in churches like in the 80, 80s called The Beast or something like that. And they said it talked about the rapture. And I'm like, what is that? Oh, Jesus is going to come and snatch us up. And I was like, what? At any time, any moment, it could happen. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. They said it talked about the Antichrist, this evil man that's supposed to just show up and just do crazy stuff, the Antichrist. But then it talked about this thing called the mark of the beast. And if you didn't take the mark of the beast, you get your head cut off. And I'm, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm like, what in the world is going on? And then I mess around and saw the trailer one time. And it dealt with all of that stuff. But I'll never forget, it ended with this lady with her kids. And they were going to this thing called a guillotine. And they were like, do you want the mark? And she was like, no. And then this thing came down and then it went off. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So I was terrified. And then maybe around 18 or 19, I finally read the book. The problem is I read the book through the lens of that fear of being terrified. So the things that I were reading was still terrifying. It was like, oh, my goodness. And then it had to be my late 20s when someone finally taught me the book of Revelation. And then that's when my perspective and everything shifted. So I'm, I'm very interested and I'm looking forward to how pastor is going to lead us through this because now we have somebody that's going to teach us the book. And one of the first things that you see with this book is not a book of fear. God didn't give us a spirit of fear. So why would he give us a letter that brings fear, that scares us half to death, that makes us not want to read it? There's a built-in blessing that goes with the book. We're going to talk about that. But that comes along with this book. So it's not meant to scare you. It's not meant to bring you into a place of fear as it is to encourage you. It's a book of encouragement. It's a book of hope. Now, I was talking to the ladies. We were talking over this when I got the call, and they said, hey, you need to, uh, to teach this, and we were talking about it, and I told them this is a book of encouragement. They said, what? A book of encouragement? And I said, yes, it's a book of encouragement because what you have to understand right off the bat is the uh, purpose and the context of the book. The purpose in the context is, number one, to reveal Jesus Christ in all of his glory, in all of his power. Like, we only think of Jesus in the Gospels, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, the one who came to give his life for us. And rightfully so, that's wonderful. That's what we love him for. But what the, the, the Jews at the time were expecting of him was this Jesus that we see in Revelation, the one that was coming to take over, the one, the one that comes in all of his power. So the purpose and context is to reveal Jesus Christ in all of his glory and to provide hope. 
Now, why do we say it's to provide hope? Now, one thing that we can't fathom as the American church and what we go through is what the church that this letter was uh, originally written to, the churches, what they were going through, what they were experiencing at the time. They were going through intense, intense persecution. Persecution like we can't even wrap our minds around the things that they were going through. At this time, <coughs> Emperor Nero was um, in charge earlier. He was in charge at the start of Christendom, at the start of our Christian faith. Nero was in charge. And Nero was considered a madman, a madman. And he wanted to be looked at as God. And so Christians were just opposed in opposition to that view. So what he did was he would kill them. He would do all kinds of things to them. He would dress them up in, in bloody sheep's guards, real sheep skins and clothes and everything, and then throw them in the, uh, the gladiator place, the arena, what have you, and allow lions to eat them. He would put them in there and have them fighting the gladiators with no weapons. He would even dip them in hot wax and light them on fire and have Christians lining his garden so that when he rolled through, they would just burn alive. And he said, yes, now you are the light of the world. These are the kind of things that he would do. And he was a madman. And then after he was deposed and another emperor came out, Domitian, he had the same fervor, if not worse, to persecute Christians. I mean, some of the things that he did were just off the chart. I won't even talk about them, but it was just terrible. And between the both of them, they probably killed between two and three million Christians. Insane. Now, Nero was a madman, but Domitian, he knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, in fact, I, I wrote some stuff down. It says Domitian's persecution was the first that waged open war against Christianity and Christ in the church. Domitian understood that the figure behind Christianity, which was Jesus, threatened the glory of the emperors, the Roman emperors, past and present. So he had a strong purpose why he persecuted Christians, and he did it to the best of his ability. So it is in that background that this letter is written. Now, if you're going through all of that and I give you a, a letter like Revelation, you like, well, what I'm going through is hell enough. So this hell doesn't scare me. Right. So and, and like I say, that wasn't the purpose of it. The purpose and the intent of, of the letter was not to scare them or to bring them fear, but to encourage them and to give them hope to number one, allow them to see Jesus in his glorified state, which said, I, I, I see you. I know what you're go going through and I'm coming. And not only am I coming, but I'm going to take care of everything. The Bible declares that vengeance is the Lord's. It is his to repay. And when you read this book, you have to look at it through that lens. He's repaying. He's repaying. He's not coming to do anything crazy to the Christians. He's coming to repay a God forsaking Christless world that won't accept him. And it, it, there is a mercy element for it because it says it gives them space and time to do what? To repent. But in this book, you'll see it says no. It says they won't repent. 
Even as things get worse and things get terrible, they will not repent. They will not run to God. They'll rather run to a mountain and say, mountain, fall on us, cover us, hide us from him. And so the purpose is to encourage us. The authorship of the book is by John the Apostle. Why do I say that? Because there are some in the higher critic arenas who question the authorship of this book. They say that it has to be another John who wrote this book because it doesn't fit linguistically or into the uh, way that John would normally write. Well, of course, duh, John is just taking shorthand, if you will. He's just recording what he sees and what he hears. This isn't a book that is uh, bled from his heart, if you will. He is just taking notes. So the authorship is this. Now, the problem with the higher critics is they, they, they look at the Bible through a different lens. They try to find errors or inaccuracies that diminish it. Um, for, for one thing, they, they, they look at the flood as being a local flood and not a global flood if it even happened. They say things like uh, the early books of the Bible, like Genesis, borrowed from earlier texts like the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it took things from that story to fill out its story and everything. They say that the book of Isaiah was written by two or three different Isaiahs or people who claim to be Isaiah writing in his stead. Things of that nature. And even the book of Daniel, whose uh, prophecy is so accurate. All they can say is it had to be written after those things happened. So these are what the higher critics say about this. And I say that because it opens up uh, different theological viewpoints of this book that we're going to look at. Uh, the first viewpoint of this book is a preterist view. What is the preterist view? I'm going to give it to you as simple. I don't understand all of the concept, but I'm going to give it to you simply. The preterist view says that the events of this book are only applicable and have only happened in the first century. That's it. Everything is done. Everything is past. I don't know what we're living in, in, if that's true. If this is the new heaven and the new earth, then the old heaven and the old earth must have been really, really bad because it's still kind of bad here. So the preterist view says it's only applicable for the first century. Then there's the historical viewpoint, historical viewpoint. It says it spans over the whole of history, especially church history. So they break it up or they call it the church age, if you will. And then when pastor gets into the churches, he'll kind of break it down. But they have this that uh, each church represents a different age in church history, if you will. So the historical view kind of has some credence there, right? And then there's the idealist view. And it says that everything in this book is allegory, right? It's, it's just a story to convey a, a different meaning, if you will. And it applies to every age. So we can pull out things that speak to us directly out of these stories. Now, the Bible does have allegory in it. But just because something is allegorical doesn't mean that it isn't true. What do we say? Paul in Romans said that Hagar and Ishmael were an allegory of the flesh. That doesn't mean that Hagar and Ishmael weren't real people in Genesis and those stories didn't happen. They just represented something else. So it's not allegory only or they're saying that it's allegory only, but we don't fall into that class. The last one is the futurist view, which means that the book is prophetic. I think it's in verse three. The book claims 
to be prophetic. So if God says it's prophetic, I'm not going to argue with God. It must be prophetic. So the futuristic view is it's prophetic. Now, certainly all of these viewpoints do hold pieces. You just can't land in one category and say, this is what it is. There are different pieces that make up the whole of the book. Amen. So the importance of studying Revelation is to understand the end times. It says the book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand. It divides itself perfectly, utilizing a built-in outline uh, to John in verse 19 of chapter 1. Jesus tells John to do this. He says, write the things which you have seen, uh, the things which are, and write the things which are to come. And this is Jesus' quote. Write the things which you have seen, chapter 1, the risen, resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. That's what he's seen. The things which are the churches that he has had dealings with currently and presently. As we get into this, you'll see the seven churches. We'll talk about the seven churches. Uh, who are they? Who are you, seven churches? It's Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are the seven churches. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is why these seven churches? Why did Jesus choose these seven churches? Because, of course, even in this area, there were other churches. There's a church in Jerusalem. There's a church in Rome. There's the Philippian church. There's the Galatian church, churches that we've heard of that Paul has written letters to. So why these seven? Why these particular seven churches? So these are things that we'll ask ourselves and they'll be uncovered as we go. Go through it. And also, Jesus is writing these letters to these churches. This is a letter from Jesus. Now, we read Paul's letters faithfully. I think 80% of our study time and preaching time come from Paul's letters. But the letters that Jesus have, has written in the beginning in chapters 2 and 3 of this book are specifically to the church. And I may have heard someone teach or preach on a one or two times letters that are specifically for us. And we're going to look at that and get into all of that. Pastor Will, not me. Pastor Will. I'm just setting what? Foundation. Amen. And so we look at all of this. Now, the interesting thing, we were talking about how these churches are going through persecution and dealing with everything. And they would get the, this letter and they would read it and see everything that's going on. Now, for most of them, for most of them, a lot of this would have been like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what it is. I don't even know how to apply it because they didn't have the perspective of it. But and I said after 2020, a heck of a year, I can definitely see how some of these things are lining up how they're starting to go. There's a part in this that we're going to talk about. There's two witnesses that are going to come and they're going to just breathe fire and all of this stuff. They're going to be able to call down fire from heaven and do all of this stuff. And it says the people of the world are just going to be just insane with these people, like crazy trying to hide them and get away from them. And then ultimately these two witnesses will be killed. And then it says they'll be killed and their bodies will lay in the street for three days. And it says this, the whole world will see it. The whole world will see these bodies laying in the street. Now, for most of Christendom, they had to ask themselves, how? How? 
in 2020, now I'm not getting anything political, but we all watched a man die on TV. On TV. The whole world. And the whole world responded. The whole world responded. And when I saw that, I said, wow, those things are lining up. And then when you talk about the mark of the beast and being the buy and sell and having to use your hand and your forehead and all of this other stuff, you would say, how? It, <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. We're, we're handing out denariuses and this and that. How does that even play? Well, now we know the credit card age, the last 30 days, the credit card age. You, some people even have that technology now. You can get a little chip up under your arm and you can scan in and out of things. I think uh, the Whole Foods down here has something where you don't even have to pay anything. You just use your fingerprint or your retina scan or something like that. You go to the airport and it's super high tech if you pay for it. You can just go in there. But these things are starting to show themselves. And we can say in our generation, we can say, I can see that. I can, I can see how that could happen, right? So these things are starting to line up. So now that we got some of that out of the way, let's, let's jump into a little bit of the chapter. I'm only going to do like eight verses, and we're just going to pull out a few things that will uh, hopefully wet our whistle. Amen? So looking at verse 1, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him. Stop. Whose revelation is it? It's Jesus Christ. Now, some of your Bibles will say uh, revelation of St. John. Again, John is just the one who is recording it. This is, in fact, Jesus's revelation. And it says, which God gave to him. Immediately what I thought about was when Jesus said, uh, he said, no man knows the day or the hour except for the father, not even the son. And then I read this and then so so Jesus may not know the day or the hour, but he knows exactly what's going to happen and how it plays out. Immediately, that's what I thought, thought about the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him for what the purpose to show unto his servants things which must shortly come. Now, I got stuck on that shortly. I got stuck on the shortly because if this was written around 90 A.D. to churches then, and he says this will shortly come, and it is 2023, and we're still waiting for these events to happen, I said, Lord, you got to explain something. You got to show me something. Well, the word shortly doesn't mean like something that is going to happen like, in a few minutes or soon, somebody say, oh, I'll be there in a little while and they never come. And you're like, what happened? What's going on over here? The word shortly simply means that when these things start to transpire, it's going to go. And the idea I heard one preacher say it like this. He said, if you've ever noticed driving to Vegas and you go on down the 15, you may see a sign that says, oh, uh, come stay at the wind. Say, OK. And then as you get closer to Vegas, you may see a couple of signs. And say, come stay here, come, come visit here, come play here, whatever. And then as you get closer to Vegas, you start seeing signs and signs. And then all of a sudden there's signs everywhere and billboards and everything's flashing and lights. So as time goes, when these things start to happen, we're in it. We're in it. It's going. So if it's happening, then if, if all this conflict that we see going on in Israel, if this is the kickoff of it, put your seatbelts on. We're about to roll. 
we are about to roll. The other thing about that is, I don't know where you fall with your view uh, of, 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 of the rapture, but there definitely will be a rapture. We just can't accurately say when. So you have three camps that have come. You have uh, pre, uh, mid, and post, whichever one. I just hope that I'm in it. Doesn't matter. But you have this view that has come. And so people have uh, implemented what they call the doctrine of eminency. Uh, that it could happen at any moment or any time. And we believe that that's what scripture is telling us. So we're, we're, we're to be ready. We're to be ready. But the shortly, and what I was thinking about it, if that shortly does apply to us and every other generation that's been here, it has to be because of the fact that the Bible declares that our lives are but a vapor, a wisp. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. So that would mean that upon our deaths, that we would be translated into the thick of things, wherever it is. And it is my belief, I've sat here and I've said this before to you, I'm not dogmatic about it, but I have heard some scholars preach and I do believe that when we die, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When we die, I believe we go straight to the rapture. No, where, where, whenever, wherever it happens, we go straight there. Paul said the dead in Christ rise first and then they who remain that particular generation that is blessed, I guess to say, that they don't have to die. That particular generation will be caught up after the dead. And he was uh, giving comfort to the Thessalonians who for some reason thought that those who had died had missed everything or would miss everything. So Paul is encouraging them saying, no, the dead in Christ rise first. So that means that when they finally get caught up, that will, I say will, I don't, I'm not a plan on that, but the dead will already be there. And so I believe that each generation that has preceded us and has died, they're at the rapture waiting for maybe us, right? Because in Romans, we just did Romans, it says we're waiting for the full number of the Gentiles to come in. So if you're not saved today and you're in here, it may be you. Go ahead, get it done so we can get this ball rolling. <laughs> Amen? So, so that does bring hope to them that through your persecution, through your trials, through whatever it is that you're going through, if you die, this is where you are. He's waiting for you. Amen? Things which must happen shortly to come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Now, I highlighted that word signified or signified because it means that he used signs. He used uh, illustrations. He used things. Now, why would he do this? There's a thing that they call apocalyptic language. There are certain bi uh, books in the Bible that utilize this literary structure, apocalyptic language. And it means it uses signs. It uses uh, different things to kind of mask things, if you will. This letter would ultimately be circulated in these churches who were dealing with intense persecution. So, the thought is if it fell into Roman hands and they read it and it said, oh, the king is coming and he's going to squash all powers that ain't him. 
they could get in trouble for those kind of things. But if they pick up this letter, it's Harry Potterish to them. It's like, okay, dragons and demons and locusts with hair and all of that stuff. They can't decipher it. They don't understand. And part of our problem is we don't understand it because we haven't read our Bibles. Do you know there are over 400 allusions to things in the Old Testament? So that if you've read through the Old Testament and you've really studied through it, when you get to this book and you start to see these different signs and symbols and things, you say, hey, I've seen that before. That, that makes sense. So I remember that. Oh, yeah, okay. Because they talked about it. Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah, Psalms, Genesis. And I didn't notice. I'm waiting for this study. But they say uh, the book of Joshua is a direct correlation to Revelation. And that's a heck of a study. Maybe we'll get into that one day. But the Old Testament hold keys to unlocking some of the truths that are in the book of Revelation. Amen? So it says he signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Verse 2, who bear record. There it is. John is the one who recorded it. Who bear record of the word of God. Now, we're getting in, we're starting to get into some of the patterns. Now, there is a thing that shows up here. Um, Biblical numerology, if you've studied that or heard anything about it. And that's uh, kind of the study of numbers. All numbers have a meaning or this and that. Well, in this book, they definitely have meaning because they happen so much. You see them so much. Uh, the number three shows up. We're about to look at that. The number seven shows up over a hundred times. They said there's so many sevens in this book that you can't even accurately list them all. And it shows up in actual uh, things, the seven churches, seven spirits, seven uh, lampstands, seven this, seven that. But then they're also alluded to. It's so many sevens in this book. It's just, it's crazy. And then the number 10 and then the number 12 is primarily in this book. And these numbers all have meaning that will help you uh, like a key card to kind of unlock all this thing. The number three is the number of spiritual completeness. And that's where you get the triune view of God. God is complete in himself and his triune nature. Three is the number of spiritual completeness. Seven is the number of completion and uh, perfection, totality and wholeness. In seven days, God created the earth and everything. Seven days in a week speaks of that completeness so that when you start to see these numbers, you start to think of these things and then it helps uh, define some of the things that you see. 10 is the number of government, 10 horns, 10 nation, things of that nature. 12 is the number of spiritual authority, the 12 disciples, the 12 patriarchs, uh, 12 being a multiple of 144,000, meaning that uh, authority that they'll have here. So all of those things will start to make sense. I bring that up because we get to our first set of three. Three, spiritual completeness. What do you see? Verse two, who bear record of one, the word of God, and of two, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of three, all things that he saw. So you'll start to see that theme happen over and over again. There's these parallels of three. The very next verse, you'll see it again. Verse three said, blessed is he that reads, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and three, keep those things. There's your, your three again. You see it? Now, Looking at verse three, remember I told you there's a special blessing that goes along with this book. This is where it is. Verse three. Blessed is he that reads this book. Now I want to pause there and just 
Expound on that just a little bit. Blessed is he that what? Reads. Not, not, not him who uh, can explain. Not him that can interpret with perfect accuracy. But him that simply does what? Read. And to them that what? Hear. Them that hear. Not understand everything. Not be able to comprehend all of the things that are coming at you. But simply hearing. So blessed are they that read and they that hear and they that keep those things. What does that mean? Hold on to them. Study them. Read them like you do with your Bible in any other time. Study them. Uh, see what God, go through the encouragements. Read the letters uh, to the church and, and everything. Hold on to those things because it is a blessing. It's encouragement. It's what we can build on to help us through our daily walk. Amen. Now, the idea is that it is to be read aloud if you read it and you hear it. So you read this book aloud, and that's what we're doing. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written from therein, for the time is at hand. And there's that at hand again, and that's what we were talking about earlier, about the death and being there, if that's so how it happens. Uh, verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches, there's our first seven, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace. Here's another three. From him which is and which was and which is to come and from what? The seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, when you hear that seven spirits, now you're like, what in the world? But I just gave you the key. Remember what seven is. Seven is completeness and perfection. It's the Holy Spirit in his totality. His wholeness as he is. That's all it is. Uh, uh, the seven spirit, the seven churches. We talk about the seven churches coming up. Now, that's a perfect number. Complete, the complete church, the perfect church, the whole church, the church in totality. That means this letter is for you. This letter is to you. It's not just for this church. It is contextually for them, but it is also for you and all the churches throughout church age. Amen. And then verse five says, and from Jesus Christ, this letter is from Jesus Christ, who is another three, the faithful witness, uh, the first begotten of the dead and the prince or ruler of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Jesus is the faithful witness. This letter is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's tried and true. He's the faithful witness. You can take it to the bank. These things that are in here will happen, will transpire. We, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a millennial reign of Christ where he will rule and reign over this earth for a thousand years, there will be the blessings that are in here for you. There, th these things will happen. Why? Because he's the faithful witness. Amen. And he is the first begotten of the dead. So we know that the resurrection is true. We know that we can count on our resurrection. Why? Because Jesus is the first one. He's the first one to be resurrected, never to die again. And Ruler of the kings of this earth, no matter what's going on, no matter who's in charge or, or who's on the throne presently in these nations around the world, 
We know that the King of kings and Lord of lords is on the throne in heaven, and he ultimately rules and reigns over everybody. Amen? And then verse 6 says, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. You are royalty. You are royalty. I know I saw this documentary one time where they were talking about uh, Prince William and Prince Harry over there and how they groomed them to be royalty. They don't walk like we walk. They don't walk like common people. They don't talk like common people. They aren't taught like common people. There is a special, there's something special about them. They're trained in royalty and royal behavior. Well, you are royalty. And the Bible and Bible study and pastor preaching and teaching to us is all him grooming us, teaching us how to walk royally, how to talk royalty, and how to carry ourselves and live our lives royally. And it says that we are also priests, not just him, not just me, but all of us. We are also priests. That means that we hold sacred the sacred text, the word of God. We hold true the gospel of God. We spread it throughout the world. Not only do we hold it and we spread it, but we live it. We live out the gospel. We are an example of all of this. We were talking about uh, the differences when, when tribulation and trials. Jesus said the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Everybody goes through the same things. The only thing that's different is how you deal with it. And when they go through it and all is lost and the whole world is falling apart and there's nothing left from them to do and they have no hope, you do. And they see how you respond to the different trials and tribulations that you may go through. They see how you respond to it. And it is in them seeing that they come and ask you, how are you dealing with this? How, how are you coping? How are you able to make it when seemingly we're going through the same thing because you don't have stock in the same thing that they have stock? Your investment is in heaven. We understand like Abraham, we are, we are sojourners. We are here for a little while. We, we, we set up tents. We don't build houses. We set up tents because at any moment, at any time, we may need to leave or God may call us. I think we were talking about that in some other sermons that have been taught in the blessed life, that you have to be open, willing, and available for whatever God will lead you or wherever he will lead you or however he will lead you. Don't have so much stock in your career or your lifestyle or the thing that you've amassed here because like the rich man who didn't know what to do and he just figured he was going to build more stuff, his life was required of him that same day. And everything he had went to somebody else who didn't value it and they got rid of it and it was gone. So don't hold on to this stuff that you amass here. I think the Bible says, store up your riches in heaven where moth and rust and fire and all other kind of things can't destroy it. And not here on earth where those same things will destroy it and get rid of it. And if your stock is in that, then you're destroyed right along with it. So the idea is that you are a priest. You are royal. You are what they call a royal priesthood. You are super, super valuable to God. Amen. Amen. And verse 7 says, behold. And here's the encouragement. Behold, he comes with the clouds. 
Now, these aren't condensation. These aren't this. This means in his glory. There's one version where it talks about uh, uh, there, there, there's this cloud of witnesses that watch over us. It's my belief that this cloud, that we are God's glory, that we are the glory that he comes back with. He says, behold, he comes with the cloud and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. This speaks of the day of the Lord. When the second coming, when he finally comes back and he's about to set everything straight and everything right here. It's called, I think in one, one place in the Old Testament, they call it the great and terrible day of the Lord. How is it great and terrible? Well, for those who are saved and those who are Christian, it's great. Hey, we've been waiting to see you. But for those who have not believed in him, who have not walked after his ways, it's going to be terrible. He's going to look terrifying to them. They're going to freak out. They're going to lose their mind. Because they're not ready, they weren't prepared, and by then, hey, it's too late. He's here. The great and terrible day of the Lord, he comes on the clouds. In verse 8, it says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. Here's another three, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I'm going to ask Steve to come up in autumn. And I just want to park here and keep our focus on this glorified Christ. The church is going through, at this time, intense persecution. Persecution that we can't fathom. But what it doesn't do, it doesn't diminish what we're going through right now. It doesn't diminish what other generations have struggled with. What other generations have fought with. Oh, persecution may not have a physical form right now for us. There are other places in the world that have to deal with un, un, unfathomable things. I think from the year 1900 to 2000, they said every year 300,000 Christians in the world die. 300,000 from 1900 to the year 2000. 19, uh, 300,000 Christians died every year. Every year. They say more Christians died in that time period than over the whole Christendom, than all of Christendom. And we have the luxury and the liberty, the, 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 the favor, whatever it is, the blessing to be in a country where we don't have to deal with that, watch this, yet. Yet. And I believe the, the devil, he knows what he's doing. So he understands if you kill them, they multiply. So his attack, I believe, has taken a more mental approach. And he, he wears us out, I believe, through the personal sufferings, through the personal tribulations that we go through, that we struggle with. And this is why this book is a blessing. That's why a blessing is attached to this book, because it's applicable even to us today, that we understand that Christ has been there. He's seen it. No one has suffered the fire of affliction more than Jesus has. No one has. And you can always hold on to that. And what's interesting is if you look at verse 13, I didn't put it up there. I'll just read it to you. Verse 13 goes into, as it's further explaining his glory, it says, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, there's one like unto the son of man. 
Now, the seven candlesticks speak of the church. Again, that's the church. That's the, uh, the, the, the illustration of the church, if you will, the candlesticks. And it says that he's in the midst of the seven candlesticks. And it says, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, there's one like the Son of Man. Now, and then another verse where it goes on to explain him and talks about his eyes being a flame of fire and his feet being like brass as if it were burned. Now, there are some of us who take that to mean that Jesus was a brother. He was a black man. But that's not what that's talking about. It means that his feet are in the fire or his feet were in, was in the fire. The fire and fire is often uh, expressed as affliction in the Bible. His feet were in the fire. His eyes are fire. He is a fire. And it talks about the son of man being in the midst of the candlesticks. And immediately my mind goes back to the book of Daniel. And it was three young Hebrew boys who were forced to make a decision. The king said, either you bow to me in this statue or you be burned in this fire. And they said, with all due respect, we respect you, we respect everything that you've done, but we cannot bow to you. So put us in the fire, and if he is able, he'll save us. And it says that the king at the time was Nebuchadnezzar, he was so angry, so upset, that he had the fire heated up seven times hotter. Completely, totally and it says it was so hot that the men who threw them in, they died. And so Nebuchadnezzar is watching as the flames is burning. It says he goes up to look in and he sees them walking around. He sees them walking in the flames. He sees them walking in the fire. And he says, wait a minute, uh, didn't we throw three in there? He says, I see four, and one of them looks like the Son of God. That is an illustration of Jesus being in our fires, our personal fires with us. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the earth. We don't serve a Savior that is far away or hard to reach. He's right there with you even in the fire. And so I want to pray. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up. And I just want us to hold on to the fact that our God, our King, our ruler, our priest, our everything is with us, no matter what it is that we go through. Pastor was sick this week and it just kind of took us all back. I know the prayers went up as soon as it went out and it was just, we didn't know what to do, but we prayed and God saw him through. God was with him. There is a number of you who've been sick, who've been out and it just all happened at once. And I remember telling the ladies, I was like, something's not right. This is spiritual. This is spiritual because it's all happening at once. And pastor is getting ready to teach a book that promises a blessing. And so immediately we dropped everything that we were doing and we prayed. We prayed for pastor. We prayed for you. We prayed for this church that the Lord would preserve us, that he would be with us, 
that he would allow us to get this teaching, to get what it is that pastor is trying to give to us. That was our prayer immediately. And so I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up. Steve and Autumn are going to sing a little bit, and we are going to pray. And I'm going to ask them to pray, watch this, a blessing in our lives, a blessing over your lives, because it's promised. You've heard eight chapters already, and you're already blessed, already blessed. Guess what? It gets better from here. It gets better from here. But I'm going to have them pray for you. And I want you to come up if you need to just pray and say, throw your hands up and somebody next to you will put their hand on you and pray for you as well. But I want us to receive prayer. This is a house of prayer. He said, my house shall be a house of prayer. And prayer is one of our greatest weapons ever, ever. So I want us to pray. I'm going to pray and then you can come and get prayer or be prayed for. And then I just ask that you just Bear with us in the moment and, and just bask in it. Receive it. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word, Father, your living word. Thank you that it transforms us, Father, that it gives us hope, that it takes us to the place where we need to be when life is so daunting sometimes, Father. Sometimes it gets so hard that we can't even see our way up, Lord. But thank you that you have given us the opportunity to be a part of your family and you have allowed us to call out your name, Father, to be able to pray and ask for help in our time of need, Lord. And Father, so many things going on, Father, mass shootings in, in, in Maine, Father, we just pray for the families. Father, we need you. This world is in need of you. It's crying out for you, Father. And we are just asking that you come see about us, Father. Teach us and show us your way, Father. Show us how you want us to walk and how you want us to represent you in a time such as this, Lord. Father, don't allow the things of our life to bog us down from the truth of your word, Lord. Allow us to continue to be steadfast, to grow in our faith, Father, and to be the real lights of the world that you have called us to, Father. As people mock us and, 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 and look down on us and as legislation is trying to figure out what to do with us because we stand for truth, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit continues to give us the power to stand. After you've done all you can to stand, stand is what your word says, Father. And we pray for standing power. Lord, as those people come to get prayed for, Father, we just pray that those blessings be waiting for them when they come and get them, Lord. Father, we love you and we thank you. And in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
up there's some prayer warriors up here come on the evidence is all 
Father, we just want to ask right now as we close up our worship service that the promise of the book would be that we'd be blessed. If we read it, if we hear it, and if we heed it. So God, I, I pray for an anointing of your spirit to be attentive. Pray for ears that tune our, our hearts in to hear what your spirit is saying. God, I pray for responsiveness for us. It is uh, your spirit convicts us of different things in our lives that we would say, yes, you're right, God. God, I pray that we would be humble. And God, I also want to pray just that as we study this book, that there would be a spirit of evangelism that rests on each and every one of us. God, that we would be bold about our faith because if the time is near, and I believe the time is near, that we would not be shy at all about sharing the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would see others who don't know you as those destined for an eternal place that is not glorious, and that would compel us in love to say, do you know Jesus? Do you have him in your heart? Has he forgiven your sins? So God, for us in the room, we pray just a refreshing. If we don't know you, we're open. We say, come in. If we know you, we pray for boldness to speak. God, for those online, maybe you're stumbling across this. Life's a train wreck. You're scared. And God is saying, I love you. You shouldn't be afraid. If I'm in your heart, there's nothing to fear. So, Father, we want to say how grateful we are that you gave us a, a love letter, a message of what things would look like in the end, not just in the beginning. God, help us to be a church that heeds it, and that walks in it. Thank you for this time together, God, for worship, for the glory of being your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.